0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. So you're taking your seats. Would you please open with me in your Bibles? We're going to be in Acts chapter 18 this morning, and uh, our middle school class is meeting Downstairs here, so if there's any middle schoolers, now's the time to head down the stairs for class. Uh, this morning we're continuing our study titled "Revolution," which is our study through the book of Acts. And what we're looking at as we go, we're going verse by verse and chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts, and we're looking at what took place in the world and in people's lives, in the wake of the life and death and resurrection. Of Jesus Christ so as we open up God's Word let's go ahead and pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your word we thank you for this morning that we can gather in your name Lord. we can hear the words of eternal life Lord to whom else can we go but to you because only you have the words of eternal life and so we come to you this morning and we ask Lord, that you would speak those words to us we ask that you give us ears to hear Lord hearts that are receptive and Lord we ask that you do a work in us through your word Through these words um, this morning, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. How do you see your city? Here in Acts chapter 18, Paul is on his second missionary journey, and his final stop on this journey is the city of Corinth, and Corinth had a reputation. It was famous for certain things, and those weren't very positive things, but God called Paul to see that city and the people of that city in a different way. And I believe that God wants us to see the cities that we live in in a similar way to how he wanted Paul to see Corinth. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The title of today's message is How to See Your City. Now we've been following the journey of the first missionaries who left home and they set out to tell people the good news about Jesus and to plant churches and to make disciples of Jesus in foreign lands. And here's what we read at the beginning of Acts chapter 18. Here's how it begins. It says, After this... Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So, last week in our study, we saw Paul in Athens. But now he comes to Corinth, and Corinth as a city couldn't be more different than Athens in almost every aspect. First of all, Corinth was a much larger city than Athens. Athens was a a famous city, but Corinth was really the big city of the area. Uh, Also, Athens was, you know, it was this shining city of beautiful architecture, full of intellectuals, full of academia whereas Corinth was really kind of your blue-collar, working-class city. Corinth was situated, we have a map here for you, Corinth was situated at a very strategic location. It sits on a narrow isthmus, which is a very hard word to say, by the way, that connects mainland Greece with what's called the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is that southern part of Greece. And the only thing that connects that little peninsula at the bottom of Greece to the Greek mainland, the European mainland, is this little tiny isthmus, and that's where Corinth was located. And so what that means is that the trade routes, north and south, they all went through Corinth. As well as east and west, you'd have ships from east and west coming in to Corinth to trade their goods. So it was a city of transit, it was a city of commerce, it was a city of business, but perhaps what Corinth is most famous for is that it was known as a city of immorality. Whereas Athens was a very religious city, Corinth would have made Las Vegas blush, right? Corinth was so famous, actually, for its culture of immorality that there was a saying in that day, to act like a Corinthian. That meant that you were acting sexually immoral. So if you were to say to somebody, man, you're acting like a Corinthian, that would just be to say, you're acting incredibly immorally. Furthermore, there was a slang term at this time. A a Corinthian companion was kind of a slang word for a prostitute. So the city of Corinth was synonymous with licentiousness, with hedonism, with immorality. And Paul comes to the city to bring the message of the gospel, hoping to start a church that could bring some light in this dark place. And so let's read from verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from italy with his wife priscilla because claudius had commanded all the jews to leave rome and paul went to see them and because he was of the same trade he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade so the purging of the jews from Rome by Emperor Claudius happened in 49 AD. It's a well-documented historical event. And what's interesting is that the Roman records say that the reason why Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome is because they were fighting amongst each other. The Jews were causing disturbances. There were kind of riots and protests in the streets. And it's written in this one Roman record that the, the person they were fighting about was some guy named Christus. Right? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Uh, Of course it does, because the Latin word for Christ is Christus, which it it seems that the reason for the disturbances and fights amongst the Jews in Rome that led to them being expelled from Rome in 49 AD was because the gospel had come to Rome and the Jews were, uh, you know, fighting over it. They were arguing about it. And the Roman officials, to them, this just seemed like a dispute about Jewish religion, about some guy named Christus, and they don't know who that is, so they dealt with this by expelling all the Jews from Rome. And so here's this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They were Jewish Christians, it seems, who had been expelled from Rome and had settled down in Corinth. And if you'll notice at the end of verse 2, it says that Paul went to see them. Now what this insinuates, what's most likely going on, is that in the Christian community, the Christian network of that time, people had sent word to Paul that say, hey, if you end up going to Corinth, there's a Christian couple there, Aquila and Priscilla, and if you go there, you should look these guys up and connect with them. So Paul comes to town, and the very first thing he does, he goes and he finds this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. You see, Christianity was spreading throughout the world at this time, and it wasn't just happening through Paul and Silas and Timothy, but it was also spreading organically, right? People would become Christians in a place like Jerusalem or Antioch or in any other church, and then they would move somewhere else and they would take the gospel with them, and that's how the gospel spread. we know that one of these things that happened was that a church formed in Rome before or without Paul ever going there. One of the reasons we know this is because Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, which by the way, he wrote during this time in Corinth, he writes in his letter to the Romans, he says um, that he has never been to Rome, but he's writing to the church that's there in Rome. He says that one day he'd like to go visit them, and interestingly, he mentions Aquila and Priscilla in that letter, which means that he already knew them, and this church was already in existence in Rome, apart from Paul's involvement. So Paul, he arrives in Corinth, he goes and he looks up this Christian couple who he knows lives in the city and these people welcome Paul into their home and he lives with them and they give him a job, they work together making tents because that happened to be Paul's trade as well and so he joined them in their business. There's an interesting thing that Jesus said to his disciples. In fact, it's, a, it's an interesting scene altogether. In Luke chapter 18, we read about this time when a wealthy and politically powerful young man came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. And Jesus looked at that man and he could see You know, what was obvious, this man has money, this man has political clout and influence, and so Jesus says to this man, he says, the only way you can be my disciple is if you're willing to give up everything. If you're willing to give up everything and follow me, that's what it takes, that's what it costs to be my disciple. And the young man struggled with this, and he ultimately said he couldn't do it. He wasn't willing to give up everything he had, to follow Jesus. And so Peter and the other disciples, they're standing there and they're watching this. They're listening to this conversation that Jesus is having with this rich young man. And afterwards, Peter turns to Jesus there in Luke chapter 18 and he says, but Lord, what about us? We have left everything. We left house and home. We left everything to follow you. And here's what Jesus says to him. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What Jesus is saying is that to be a follower of Him, to be a disciple of Him, requires you being willing to give up everything for the sake of following Him, should it come down to that. But here's the thing He says, It will cost you. It may cost you everything, but it's worth it. It's more than worth it because you will get so much more in return than you ever gave up. You see, for people at that time and for people in our day, particularly depending on where you live in the world, becoming a Christian sometimes comes at an enormous cost might be rejected by your family might lose your job i remember working with muslim refugees who had become christians and these are the kind of things they dealt with some of them got i remember one guy in particular got kicked out of his trade union because he became a christian he couldn't get a job right? Other people, their kids got kicked out of school. Family rejected them, no longer talked to them anymore. Sometimes you lose friends over it, right? And so Jesus speaks to this, and he says, to be a Christian means being willing to give up everything for the kingdom of God. It means being willing to give your whole life to him who gave his whole life for you, but it's worth it. It's more than worth it. It's worth it not only in the life to come, but it's worth it in the here and now as well, because to be a disciple of Jesus is to gain so much more than you would ever have to give up. It's to gain a new family. It's to gain a new community, among other things, to the point where you can go halfway across the world. You can go to some city you've never been to before, and you can find people who don't speak your language, who look completely different than you, but they're brothers and sisters, and they'll welcome you into their home, and they'll treat you like family because you are family. You have a bond that's closer than, that's thicker than blood. As Christians, you, you have a common experience that you share. You have a common identity that you share. And so Paul comes to Corinth and he looks up this couple who he heard lives in the city who are Christians. They've never met before, but they welcome him into their home. They take care of him. They give him a job as a tent maker, which by the way, it says that that already happened to be his trade. You see, every Jewish rabbi was taught a trade, was expected to learn a trade. There, there's an old Jewish saying, actually, that says, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. So Paul, along with his rabbinical studies, he also had learned a trade. His trade was tent making, and during his time in Corinth, Paul supported himself financially by working as a tent maker alongside Aquila and priscilla this couple he lived with now one of the things that people don't often think about i think when you when you read through okay paul was a missionary he went to all these places did all this stuff great awesome but but you know do you really think about the details like do you ever uh, think about this like how does he have any money like where does he have money from like how does he eat uh how does he pay for lodging how does he pay for travel And Paul actually talks about that in several of his letters, especially his letters to the Corinthians, because we could see that the Corinthians, they were sensitive about this issue of money. And here's how it worked. Paul and his fellow missionaries, they were most of the time supported financially by their sending church, which was the church in Antioch. Church in Antioch sent them out, they commissioned them, and they financed their work. And along the way, we also know that Paul and and the other missionaries, they received financial support from the new churches which they started. But there were times when because for whatever reason, maybe it was because he fell on financial hard times, he ran out of money from the donations he received, or, or maybe for more strategic reasons, Paul also worked sometimes as a tent maker to support himself. That's what he did here in Corinth. Later on, though, even after this, we know that Paul received financial support from the church in Philippi, and he lived off of that and was supported in that way as he did ministry. So these were, uh, there were benefits, really, to both practices, right? So if Paul was fully supported financially by donations, well, then he could, do, he could devote all of his time to meeting people, teaching the Word, pastoring, If, on the other hand, though, Paul had a job in addition to his ministry work, then no one could ever question his motives. No one could ever say that he's doing this uh, for the money when he taught the people that it's a good, godly discipline to give of what they make to the work of God. No one could ever question why he was doing that. And so it would help him relate to people. It would give him some credibility to have a, a job. Sometimes when people talk about missions today, you'll hear The the term, you know, that someone's a tent-making missionary or, you know, that they're a a tent-maker. And you wonder, like, wow, I didn't realize there's such a demand for tents all over the world, right? All these people making tents, you know? But that doesn't obviously mean they're literally making tents. It's a reference, you know, back here to Paul in Corinth who worked as a tent-maker to support himself as a missionary. There are some countries of the world... India and China, for example, who don't allow missionaries into their countries. And so if you're an English speaker, though, here's the deal. You've got a ticket into almost every country in the world if you're willing to teach English as a second language. And so some people, it's not really that their heart is burning with the desire to teach English. It's that their heart is burning with the desire to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people who live in a particular place and teaching English or or being a doctor or a nurse or, or whatever else That's just your ticket into that place. But your primary purpose, your desire, your goal is to be there to share the gospel with those people or to plant a church. That's what this idea of tent-making missionaries are. You know, when I lived in Hungary, my wife and I were missionaries there for you know, over a decade, and I had several jobs that I worked during that time. I, I was an English teacher for a while. I was a proofreader, so I would read, like, people's uh, dissertations. I was an interpreter, so I would go to things, and i get paid to interpret, and the thing is, I didn't need those jobs because we, we did receive financial support from the churches who had sent Rosemary and I out as missionaries. I didn't need those jobs, and honestly, they didn't pay very well, but what I found was that having those jobs put me in people's lives. See, it was more strategic than anything else. Through those jobs, I met a lot of people, and I was able to build relationships with those people and engage them in conversations about the gospel, and some of those people became Christians. You see, when we moved to Agar to start the church there, we knew like 20 people in the whole city. And so, having these jobs, this was a strategic way to meet people and build relationships. And it also, we found that it helped lower the temperature. It helped lower the walls that people would have. You know, take away their um, their guard, I guess you could say. You know, because when you show up in town and people ask, you know, hey, so why'd you move here? And you say. Well, I'm a missionary. Well, guess what? They put two and two together pretty quickly. Okay, if you're a missionary, that means you came to town to evangelize people. And who did you come to evangelize? Me, right? So people put that together pretty quickly and immediately the guard goes up and they're apprehensive. But if you can say, hey, you know, I work over here, this is my job. It immediately lowers the temperature. People put their guard down and then you're able to tell them later on, you know, but my real passion. My real passion is Jesus. I I love helping other people to come to know Jesus as I have. And ultimately, that's really what brought me to this city. You see, we found that as missionaries, it helped us strategically in relating to people and building relationships to have a job. It led to people uh, receiving the gospel and becoming Christians. So here in Corinth, Paul supported himself. By working as a tent maker alongside Aquila and Priscilla, it says that they lived together, they worked together, and as they did that, a a tight friendship, a bond, was formed between them. You know, Aquila and Priscilla come later on to play a big part in Paul's ministry. They're mentioned several in several of his New Testament letters. This is one thing that Paul says about them in his letter to the Romans. He says, Aquila and Priscilla, they are my fellow workers in the work of the gospel. And he says, they risk their own necks for my life. He says, it's not only I who am thankful for them, but all the churches of the Gentiles should be thankful for this couple. See, these people, they weren't ordained clergy, they weren't missionaries, they were just Christians who had a heart for God, and alongside their jobs, they helped Paul in planting this church, and they helped him in the work of his ministry. Let's read on from verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, and when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Whenever Paul came into a new city, this was his practice, he would go into the Jewish synagogue and because he had a rabbinical background, he would be invited to speak to the congregation and he would use that as an opportunity to tell them about Jesus, to explain to them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah and he was telling them what Jesus had done to bring them salvation. See, the Jewish people already had a framework for understanding the gospel. They understood that they needed a savior. They understood the promises of God, that God was gonna send them a savior And they were waiting for the Savior to come. And so Paul would show up and be like, he's here. His name's Jesus. And so in verse 6 we read, And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So, As in every place that Paul went to, some people, they hear this message of the gospel and they rejoice and they embrace it and others don't. And you have to wonder though, now why would a person who this is their whole worldview. This is their whole paradigm. I need a savior. God promised he's going to send me a savior, right? How would a person like that reject the message that their savior has come? That forgiveness and redemption has been purchased for them because God, out of his love for them, came down to save them. Why would anyone reject that, even, even in our day? Especially someone whose whole belief system, though, is based on the fact that one day God is promising that he'll do this. Well, over and over, what we see is that for many people, the reason they rejected the gospel, the reason they said no to Jesus, was not doctrinal, it wasn't philosophical, but it was practical. It was personal. Because they were afraid of how, if they did this, how it's going to change everything. And they're just not sure if they're really ready for that, right? It's going to change everything that we're used to. I mean, this is what we're accustomed to. This is how things work. Because that's what seems to happen whenever people turn to Jesus and and embrace the gospel is that their community changes, the way they're used to doing things changes. When Jesus comes into the question or the equation, things change. And so some people were more concerned with maintaining what they were accustomed to and not changing what they were comfortable with that they opposed the message about Jesus. And I wonder how many people there are today who do that same thing. Maybe there are even some of you here who struggle with this same thing. The reason you're hesitant to really give your life over to God fully is because you're afraid on some level that if you were to do that for real, that it would change things. Change things that you're used to, that you're comfortable with. And they may not be great things, but but they're things that you're used to and you're comfortable with them. And you know that if you were to really follow Him, that would mean some degree of upheaval in your life. And you're hesitant about doing it for that reason. But think about this. Imagine there's a person, a person you love, who is really sick. And they they go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you know, the good news is your condition is treatable. We have a cure for this, but here's the deal. The medicine for this, it's available, but it's super expensive. Like, you're probably going to have to sell your house. You're probably going to have to sell your car in order to purchase this medicine. Well, what would you say to this person? What would you recommend? If this is a person you love, what are you going to tell them to do? Well, no question what you tell them to do. Of course you tell them you should do it. What good is the house if you're dead? What good is a car? Are you going to drive your car while you're dead, right? Like, just buy the medicine. Do what you got to do. In the same way, Jesus says, what does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? What would a person give in exchange for their soul? See, when you put things in perspective, it would be foolish to reject the gospel simply because you're afraid of the change that it might bring into your life. You see, as we saw earlier, to the person who gives their life to God and follows Jesus, even if it ends up costing them something, It's more than worth it, not only in this life, but in the life to come as well. See, for anything that you might give up, what you will receive as a result of giving your life wholly over to God and becoming a disciple of Jesus is absolutely better. These people rejected the Savior that God had sent them because they were worried about losing the things that they were accustomed to and comfortable with, the the way of life that they had gotten used to. I pray that none of us would make that mistake. You see, here's Jesus. He comes to bring a revolution to this world. And revolution, by definition, means change. It's a revolution, a change that's ultimately better for us in every way. Well, as some of the people began to revile him, we see Paul's reaction. It's a very strong reaction. He says, look, I've done what I came here to do. The ball's in your court. You've heard what I had to say. Now it's on you. If you want to reject it, then that's On you, your blood's on your own head. So he goes to the house of a new believer who happens to live right next door to the synagogue, and this house of this man, Titus Justus, becomes the meeting place for the Christian church there in Corinth. Let's read verse 8. It says, Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. This is incredible, right? The ruler of the synagogue comes and embraces the gospel. His entire household along with him, they become Christians. And so here's the deal. There was some opposition to Paul and his message, but there were also incredible things happening. It says that many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized, That's great, right? I mean, what else could you ask for? People are believing, getting baptized. Paul must have felt, hey, some really good things are happening here in Corinth, right? Well, no. No, that's not how he felt, because check out what happens next. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, "'Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. "'For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. "'For I have many people in this city who are my people.' "'And he stayed a year and six months.' teaching the word of God among them. Now notice the first thing that God says to Paul in this vision. He says, do not be afraid. Now what does that imply? It implies that Paul was afraid. And that's followed up by, go on speaking and don't be silent. Where's this coming from? Why would God say these things? Well, clearly it's because Paul was dismayed. He was considering giving up. Yes, good things were happening, but it would seem that You know, after all this time, Paul's growing weary. And can you really be surprised by that? Every town he goes into, he faces opposition. People insult him. They chase him out of town. He's pouring out his heart to people, telling them that God loves them, that Jesus died for them. And what does he get in return? Insults, death threats. You know, and you you just get tired. You fight long enough and you get worn out. And even though good things are happening, I'm sure this was emotionally exhausting, Not to mention that there are some legitimate physical threats out against him right now. See, it would seem that Paul was feeling tempted to just give up and leave town. It's interesting if you ever look at the statistics about pastors, the number of pastors who struggle all the time with things like depression and feeling like they want to give up. Those numbers are crazy high, right? And that's Paul here in Corinth. He's that guy right now. Yeah, good things are happening, but Paul's just worn out. He's been fighting for so long, he's tired. He's dismayed by how people are treating him. He's thinking that maybe it's just time to call it quits. Maybe it's time to throw in the towel. Maybe it's time to just move on, do something else with his life. You know, after all, I mean, he's done what he came here to do. He shared the gospel. He started a church. Maybe it's just time to move on. And it's at that time that God speaks to Paul in a vision, and he says, no, I want you to stay, Paul. I don't want you to leave town. I don't want you to stop what you're doing. I want you to continue. I want you to just set your plow and keep going. And here's why he says in verse 10, because I'm with you. In other words, I'm gonna protect you. And the next thing he says, here's the other reason. I still have many people in this city who are my people. There's still many people in this city who are my people. And as a result of this vision, Paul stays in Corinth, we read, for a year and six months. That's the longest he stayed in any city where he started a church up until now and this was the ministry that he had in Corinth we read it there it says that he was teaching the word of God among them that's how Paul pastored this church that's how he made disciples of Jesus by teaching the word of God among them that was his priority and by the way that's something we believe in very strongly here at Whitefields but I want you to notice this that God was giving Paul a vision for his city he was telling him how to see his city Until now, Paul had seen this city the way that everybody saw this city. He saw the city that was. You could call it that. The city that was. The city that was was a place of moral depravity. It was a place of opposition to the gospel. It was a place that was hard to live. It was a place that was hard to start a church. But God wanted Paul not just to see the city that was. He wanted him to see the city that could be. The city that could be. I have many people still in this city. They just don't know it yet. They're my people, they just don't realize it yet. I want you to see this city for what it can be. I want you to see the people that you come in contact with, not just for who they are now and what they're doing right now, but for who they can be if I could get a hold of their lives. Because there are many people in this city who are my people. They're not Christians yet, but I've called them, I've chosen them, I know their destiny, they're not believers yet, but they will be their mind and I want you to stay here and I want you to play a part in their lives. I want you to help them come to that point. I want you to help them become disciples of Jesus. See God is telling Paul, I want you to see the city not just for how it is. I want you to see how it could be. See Paul came to people came to Corinth from all over the world, right? They came from all over Greece, they came from uh, the sea. What if, what if there was a strong church in Corinth and then people from all over the world could come to Corinth and they could meet Jesus and then they could return home having been changed by the gospel? What if Corinth became a place from which Christians could take the gospel out into the entire world? What if, right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is a conviction of things not seen. God wants Paul to see the city of Corinth with the understanding that these are people who, you see these people frequenting these pagan temples? You see these people involved in prostitution? Some of those are his people. Some of these people who are currently opposed to the gospel, some of them are his people. They've got a calling on their lives. That's their destiny. They just don't know it yet. God still had many people in the city. So don't give up. In the same way, I believe this is how God would have us see our cities and the people that we interact with. See that all people, deep down inside, in their heart of hearts, what they're craving, what they're desiring, what they're looking for are things which can only be found, which can only be satisfied in and through Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. Get down to the core reasons. What are people looking for when they turn to substances, when they abuse drugs, alcohol? What are they looking for? Why do they do that? Why are people promiscuous why do people lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead? Why? W- what is it that they're doing? Ultimately, they're looking for something, aren't they? See, they're looking for something which is, which is actually good, but they're looking for it in the wrong ways and in the wrong places. And ultimately, those things that they're doing are, are gonna leave them empty and broken. So rather than looking down our nose at people and just saying, oh, you're all just a bunch of sinners, right? Instead of looking down our nose at people and just writing them off, What if we actually could see what they're looking for and realize that ultimately what they're looking for is Jesus, they just don't realize it. And then we actually have compassion for people and understand that what's at the heart of their longings, what they're really desiring, is the gospel. You see, people abuse substances. Why? Because we live in a broken world and it's painful and they want to have a break. They want to escape it. They want a way to cope with life. People seek out inappropriate romantic relationships. Why? Because they're looking for something. They're looking for affirmation. They're looking for acceptance. They're looking for love. These are desires which are, are good desires. And you know what? They're desires which are fulfilled. And they're fulfilled ultimately and truly and fully in and through Jesus Christ. You see, these people are looking for Jesus. They just don't realize it. See, I was reading this thing about T.S. Eliot this week. I've been reading these biographies. So I've been reading about T.S. Eliot. And T.S. Eliot was a committed Christian. Uh, and he became famous, of course, for his poetry and his short writing. But later on in life, when T.S. Eliot, he committed that he's going to use his skill as a writer for God's glory. He began writing plays. And so at that time, you know, playwriting was considered kind of a lower form of art. Kind of like right now, it would be like writing sitcom TV, Right. So he began writing plays for the theater. And the reason he did it, he explained. He said it's because he believed that people who are attracted to drama are people who are unconsciously seeking God. That's why they're attracted to drama, because in their heart, they're unconsciously seeking God. See, think about us. We live in a society that's absolutely addicted to drama. I mean, people binge watch things on Netflix, right, for weeks until like they lose their job and their electricity gets cut off. But at least they finished all 15 seasons of whatever show they're watching, right? And why do they binge watch things? Why do they sacrifice their lives so they can binge watch on Netflix? Why? It's because they cannot get enough of these dramatic stories. And why are they drawn to drama at all? Here's why. Because drama touches on the fundamental longings that all human beings share. Longings for love that never ends. Love that redeems. Good that conquers evil. Longings for beauty and for perfection. Longings for a supernatural world. The longing to connect with the divine. To break free from the limitations of this physical world. To be free from aging and sickness. See, all of these things, these are longings which ultimately find their fulfillment. Only, truly, in and through Jesus. See, because we were created by God. We were created in his image. We were made for perfection, but we've fallen. Sin has tainted things. We're broken. We live in a broken world, but yet we have this ancestral memory of how things should be, of how things were meant to be, and we long to get back to that place. That's why we have these longings, and so these longings, though, the thing is that their fulfillment is only truly, ultimately, in and through Jesus Christ. It's in him, it's through him, because of his death on the cross, because of his resurrection, that these longings of our hearts can find their fulfillment. Redemption, forgiveness, a relationship with God, love that never ends, good that conquers evil, freedom from sickness and pain, the physical limitations of life, freedom from the darkness which dwells within us. This is how to see your city. This is how to see people around you, understanding that God has many people here who don't know him yet, but yet they are seeking him even if they don't realize it. So what do you do? What do you do with that? I mean, it's one thing to know that, but what do you do? When Paul got this vision of how to see this city, what did he do? He stayed in Corinth, and he continued to spread the message of Jesus throughout the city. In Acts chapter 5, we read this thing which I always think is very interesting. It says there that the Christians in Jerusalem were accused by the authorities. They were accused, and this is what they said, you have filled this city with this teaching. You have filled the city with this teaching. See, that's what Paul was encouraged by God to do in Corinth. And oh, that we would be accused of that in, in our cities, that we as a church are just filling the city with this teaching. See, that's why we put our teachings on the radio that's why we produce content online that's why we we want to fill this city with this teaching of God's word and with the good news of Jesus Christ see interestingly one of the Greek words for preaching literally just means conversing like having a conversation so how do you fill the city with these teachings how do you and me how do we do that Well, one of the ways is this, by just having it on your lips and bringing it in your conversations. That's what the early Christians did. They talked to people. They talked to people about their lives, what they were learning, what was going on, what God was doing, and that teaching permeated the city. Paul later writes to the Colossians this interesting phrase. He says, Let your speech always be with grace, and let it be seasoned with salt. Salt, of course, being a metaphor for the gospel and the things of God. And he says, as you talk to people, season your speech with salt. A little here, a little there. Inject it here, inject it there. You know, don't be the guy who just comes and dumps a bunch of salt on something because nobody likes that, right? And uh, people shut you down. But season your speech with salt. A little here, a little there. As the opportunities present themselves in conversation and by doing so, you will fill the city with the teaching of Jesus. So check out what happens after Paul has this vision. Verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So, as God promised, he is protecting Paul from this attack. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. After a year and a half in Corinth, Paul returned to Antioch, which was in Syria, thus concluding his second missionary journey. And this vow, it's mentioned that he took, this is a vow, this was a Jewish vow, which is mentioned, by the way, in Numbers chapter 6, the Nazarite vow, of not cutting your hair, not consuming alcohol, and there are a few other things. It was a way of consecrating yourself to God for a time of focused, seeking God. Similar to what Christians do when they fast. So verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he went, went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And we landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. So coming by boat, you know, they would have gone uh, from Corinth. They would have gone across the Aegean Sea. And they would have landed on what is mainland nowadays, Turkey. And the city of Ephesus, which was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. It's a city that Paul had had always wanted to go to, to preach the gospel and to start a church. Um, And so he goes there, but he leaves Priscilla and Aquila to get started on the work there without him, and he continues on to Antioch. And this concludes Paul's second missionary journey. Next week, we're gonna pick up, as Paul begins his next journey. But here's the thing I'd like to leave you with this morning, this message that Paul preached, the message of the gospel. It would be wrong for us to just talk about what Paul did and not consider the message that he preached. See, the message of the gospel is this. You and I, we're not who we should be. We've sinned. We've fallen short. You are more flawed than than you even realize. You're more broken than you even realize. But here's the good news, that in spite of that, you are more loved by God than you could ever imagine. And because of his great love for you, he sent Jesus to save you and to redeem you by living the life that you should have lived and dying the death that you should have died, bearing in himself the judgment for your sins as he hung upon the cross. And the result of that is that you can be forgiven. You can be right with God. You can be healed, you can be made whole, and you can have the life that is truly life forever. All he requires of you is that you receive this gift of his grace of what he's done for you and that you give him your life, that you make him your Lord. He died so that you could live. He was judged in your place so that you could be free. So my question as we conclude is this. Will you receive this message of the gospel this morning? And will you give all of your life to him who gave all of his life for you? Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this message of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that we see as we, we look at this, we see, Lord, that truly we are more loved than we can ever imagine. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for expressing that love by coming to us and saving us. And Lord, would you fill our hearts with that same love. Lord, this morning I pray for anybody who's here today who, like the people of, uh, of this city, they, they resisted because they were afraid of the change that it would bring in their life if they were to really become disciples of Jesus. Lord, may that not be true of any of us. Lord, may we see, as we see in this text, that, Lord, you require all of us, but yet it's more than worth it. You require more than we could ever imagine, but you give more than we could ever imagine. So, Lord, thank you for this gospel, and I pray that we would receive it, each and every one of us this morning and that we would live in light of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution Series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.